0: You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's
1: Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, this most wonderful of parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is put here in the Scriptures by the Holy Spirit for us, for our instruction, for our repentance, and for our edification. But before it was published here for the entire church, these words were spoken by Jesus to a certain Jewish lawyer. Now, a lawyer has a different sense in ancient Israel. This was uh, not just someone who, who, offend, or who uh, brought cases to court or defended people in court, but this was someone whose life was given over to the study of the Torah, <clears throat> the law of God. He would spend his time reading the scriptures and reading and studying the rabbis, And he would debate these questions of the law in the synagogue. That's what they were used to doing. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus to debate him. We have, in fact, a great advantage from the text that we know what is motivating this man's questions. His first question, "'Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?' is motivated by the same thing that motivated the lawyers and the Pharisees every time they came to talk to Jesus. They wanted to test Him. Now, this is most of the time a negative motivation. That is, they wanted Jesus to fail the test. They wanted Him to fall flat. They wanted Him to fail. They wanted Him to stumble at a question and thus prove that He was neither God nor the Messiah. But this never happened. In fact, Jesus would constantly answer their questions with such profound uh, simplicity and clarity that they would be left silent. But it could be that this motivation to test Jesus with this lawyer had, in fact, a positive slant. That this particular lawyer had heard something in the teaching of Jesus that caught his interest, and now he, in fact, wants to learn more. And I think this might explain the question. This was not the kind of question that the rabbis used to trip up the other rabbis. Like those that, remember the questions that they brought to Jesus on Holy Tuesday in the temple? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What's the greatest commandment? How will marriage work in the resurrection? These were the questions that they would use to debate and fool one another. But this lawyer today asks the most basic theological question that there is to ask. How am I to be saved? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is the kind of question that you ask someone when you think that the teaching that you have and that they have is different, when they're giving you a different doctrine. In fact, I would imagine that this question has come up with you in your own conversation. You're talking to your friends, they're of a different confession, they're Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or whatever, and the conversation stumbles across a difference in theology Maybe you realize that you don't teach the same thing about baptism or about the Scriptures or about faith or about whatever it is. And you almost instinctively go to this question. Well, then, how do you teach that you're saved? You know what I'm talking about? Now, something like this is happening with the lawyer. Jesus, I've heard you talk about the, t- the kingdom of God, about the Son of Man, about death and life, about mercy and grace. And it seems like there's a different doctrine here. How then do I inherit eternal life? But, while this man is asking a question, it seems like a positive test of Jesus. It is also true that this question at this point is mostly an intellectual question. He's not asking the question, how do you inherit eternal life? Because he's actually wondering for himself how to inherit eternal life. He's asking this question because he wants to know what Jesus' answer will be. So, because of this, Jesus puts the question back on him. What does the Bible say? And the lawyer answers this. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's the modification of Deuteronomy 6 through Jesus. And then from Leviticus 19, he says, And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is the perfect rabbi answer. It goes under the category, ask a law question, get a law answer. <laughs> it is almost word for word the same answer that Jesus gave to another question, the question, what is the greatest commandment? But this man answers and says that this is how you are to inherit eternal life, by, keep, by completely keeping the law. Now, this is, this is works righteousness. And the surprise for us is that Jesus doesn't completely condemn the answer for having nothing to do with grace and mercy, nothing at all to do with forgiveness of sins and God's kindness. But Jesus, in fact, lets this answer stand. Jesus says to him in the text, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, if there was salvation by the law then this would be the way to attain it. By totally keeping the law of love for God and for your neighbor with everything that you've got. Now this, of course, we know is an impossibility because of sin. Both original sin and actual sin, but especially original sin. That inborn condemning corruption that we inherit from Adam. But it seems like in this lawyer's answer that there is no place for sin in his theology. And because of this, there is no place for mercy and forgiveness. He's read the Old Testament, but he has missed the blood. He's missed the law that condemns, that accuses him, and the promises that forgive him. But there's something in this response of Jesus that gets to this lawyer. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, perhaps the thing that gets to this lawyer is that Jesus doesn't say, you've done this and you will live, but rather, do this and you will live. In other words, there's something more for you to do. You haven't finished this work. You have to get after it. I don't know, but there's something in the answer of Jesus that gets to this lawyer that, 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 that pricks his conscience, that, that condemns him a little bit. And so now he asks a different and a second question. And again, we know the motivation. And this is a different motivation. The text says, he desiring to justify himself says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, this question is not theoretical, but intensely practical. The law has done on this lawyer its most important work. At least it's begun to do the work. He stands there accused, guilty. And we see the instinctive reaction of his flesh and of our own flesh when the law has convicted us. Self justification. This man, can you imagine it? This man has heard the law preached from his own lips. Love your neighbor as his self. And he has wondered for a moment of brutal and dangerous candor, have I done it? Have I kept the law? Have I loved my neighbor? Now we know, of course, that he hasn't. You know that you haven't. I know that I haven't. We hear this kind of thing preached at us every Sunday. We confess it all this time, that we're sinners. We, in fact, are used to being sinners. (laughs) But can you imagine it for the first time with this man? The thought dawning on you, the thought that you had never thought before, maybe I'm not perfect, (laughs) maybe I won't inherit eternal life. And this thought breaks on this man's heart and this mind, and there's a visceral reaction from his sinful flesh, the act of self-justification. And it comes out in this question, Who's my neighbor? You see, that th- you see what this question does? This question, Who is my neighbor, is an attempt to limit the law, to kind of shrink it down. It's an attempt to make the law manageable, doable, accomplishable. This, this question, who is my neighbor, wants to put a limit on love. I mean, love, remember, requires everything. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Everything you've got is poured out in love. And love ends with death. If you're still alive, you know that you have not completely loved your neighbor. Jesus says, remember, no greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. In fact, there is never a time in your life when you can say that you have accomplished this command to love. Uh, My parents, this might be an admission, my parents for my birthday got me a little pedometer which keeps track of all the steps that you take. I'm not reading anything into it. And if I take in a day 10,000 steps, then this little thing buzzes and it gives me a little m- l- nice message and it says, congratulations, you've reached your goal for the day. <laughs> At which point I immediately sit down. <laughs> <laughs> now imagine that instead of having a pedometer, you have a loveometer. <laughs> That measures all the times you love God and love your neighbor throughout the day. Now, look, I guarantee you, you never get a congratulatory message from that little thing. You never get the message, congratulations, you've loved enough. <laughs> you never get the message, congratulations, you've served enough. Congratulations, you've died enough. There is never enough. It's, not, it's never done. So that that command to love demands everything for us and from us, and it always condemns, it always accuses us. Now, as an aside, there's a danger when we we hear this kind of preaching, and the danger is something like this. We, We hear this thing saying, well, I'll never finish loving my neighbor, so then I won't even start. What's the use? Now that is the devil's voice. We know that we're sinners because we've tried to live a righteous life and failed. Because we've begun and we've not finished. Because we have ventured and risked loving God and loving our neighbor and we have come up short. It is especially when we try to keep the law, when we try to love, that we actually see that we fail. That we are sinners. And it's when we attempt to keep the law that it accuses us. But you see, this is the problem. The law always accuses The law of love always accuses us so that if I want to stop that accusing voice of the law, then what I have to do is change the law, reduce it, soften it. I have to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Now, remember, we we preach about this all the time, the neighbor list. (laughs) If you can imagine that you and I have in our minds and in our hearts A working list of people that we consider our neighbors. (laughs) Those people that we feel an obligation to love. And this is the point, not who's on that list, but who's not on the list. Especially when we take people off of the list. And then we self-justify our not loving them. If a person, remember how this goes, if a person sins against me and I become angry with them, then they're off the neighbor list and I don't have to love them. If a person is my enemy, then they're off the neighbor list and I have no obligation to bless them. Now Jesus, in this parable, is especially getting at the sin of racism, which is basically saying that an entire group of people, an entire culture, is off of the neighbor list and I'm free from the obligation of caring for them. Now, this is wrong. And all of this limiting of the neighbor list, of of marking people off that list, is an act of self-justification. It's an attempt to make the law doable so that you can stand by your own efforts and say that I've kept it. I've done it. I've loved my neighbor as myself. But this road Ends in destruction. So Jesus has this question to put before us today and for us to meditate on. And it is a frightful question. Who have I taken off of the neighbor list? I, I imagine that each of us could write three or four names on our bulletin of people that we've freed ourselves from the obligation of loving. Or this question. How have I softened the law so that it doesn't accuse me, but I can stand in my own self-righteousness? Or this question. With what person or what people, what group of people, have I falsely liberated myself from the obligation to love? Or to say it as simply as possible, who do you hate? Who do you consider an enemy? Repent. Jesus won't let you get off so easy. Love your enemy, he says. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. There is no self-justification with Jesus. No marking people off the list. No getting out of this command to love. Now, this is not easy. In fact, uh, it's impossible. We begin to love, to bless, to pray. But time after time, we fail. Time after time, you fail, and you know it. Love is never done, at least not our love. But look, while you were still sinners, while you were still the enemies of God, He loved you. Christ came for you, even. When you didn't believe in him, when you didn't trust him, and when you constantly abused his law, he was beaten, stripped, and abandoned. Left, not half dead, but completely dead on the cross for you. And his love, his love is complete, his love alone is finished. Jesus alone does not stand condemned or accused by the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He, in fact, kept the law for you. And by His promise, by His mercy, by His love, by, by His gift of baptism and by the supper, by His feeding you his, bear, his very own body and blood. He has forgiven you all of your lovelessness and given to you His love, His righteousness, His perfection. He, in His resurrection, has inherited eternal life. And He brings that inheritance to you freely. Not of your works, not of your obedience to the law, but by grace. His love rescues us, even from our failure to love. And in this, dear sinners, we rejoice. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.